Dueling Genre Productions presents. Oh my god, do you see that? When a freak accident strikes McKinney City, ordinary citizens are given amazing abilities. I can move things with my mind. Oh my god, I'm flying. I can fly. I can teleport and I can fly. Super senses. What, like Daredevil? We are just playing fast and loose with this whole science thing today, aren't we? Now, there are villains. Billy, when you have an arch nemesis, do you just kill them immediately? No. You tie the ropes just loose enough so that they can keep escaping. That way, when you finally do win the day, you can sleep well knowing that you rose to the challenge. Your brain works differently than other people's, doesn't it? And heroes. Leah Markowitz, Gwendolyn Allen, Jeffrey Gibson, Mindy Gibson, Simon Holt, Splendid, you're all here. I'm going to make you all into superheroes. Screw it. Let's go save the day. The Powerful. After I drain everyone here, McKinney City will be mine. I'm going to show this whole city what real passion truly is. And the underdogs. You're all imagining me as a singing, dancing chipmunk right now, aren't you? The people in that store need help, and we can help them in a way no one else can. We have great power, which means they're our responsibility. I mean, Jesus, what's the point of having five freaking Spider-Man movies if we can't even learn to do that? Geek by Night, an original podcast series about five friends running a comic book store with superpowers. You're really going to keep running a comic book shop while trying to be superheroes? It might not always be easy, but I think the world could use a few more underdogs. Available at DuelingGenre.com and podcast apps everywhere. Dueling Genre Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski. And I'm Todd Mack. And this week we are discussing Roger Thornhill from North by Northwest. How are you doing, Todd? I'm well. We're here in the same room with each other. It's uh, it's fun to see you. It's very infrequent. And uh, I, we probably shouldn't make any references to current events because we're recording this to get a backlog for our summer when we're both traveling some. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, uh, yeah. We'll just uh, we'll just carry on. North by Northwest is a 1959 film written by Ernest Lehman and directed by Alfred Hitchcock and starring Cary Grant as Roger Thornhill, Eva Marie Saint as Eve Kendall and James Mason as Philip Van Damme. It tells the story of an ad executive who is mistaken for a spy and then some craziness ensues after that. And I think the most important question immediately is, do you have a James Mason impersonation? (laughs) Oh, James Mason is so good. Um, I was just trying to remember. I think that the first time I saw James Mason was in Ivanhoe with uh, Andrew, the guy that's in um, the Scarlet Pimpernel. Oh, um, oh, that name is not going to come to me. I don't have the internet in front of me, but uh, the guy that plays the Scarlet Pimpernel is also Ivanhoe in the film Ivanhoe, and James Mason is in that film. Uh, and he's very good. I like I like James Mason. Anthony Andrews. Anthony Andrews. Yeah. I mostly knew about James Mason because so many comedians still do impressions of him. 
Yeah. <laughs> when James Mason, <laughs> they were like, pull back the voice and slur some of their, their mouths a little. Uh, and, and like growing up, like I saw that and I was like, who is this James Mason? And I still haven't seen him in terribly many things. Um, but when you hear his voice, it's like, oh, there's James Mason. Is he in the film Heaven Can Wait? With uh, Warren Beatty? Yes, he was, Todd. He, he, yeah, definitely was in Heaven Can Wait. I didn't just check the recesses of my mind. That was like... <laughs> so that's what I, I, that's what I know from. Oh, okay. Uh, how did you first come to North by Northwest, Todd? I'm, I don't know. It was just a Hitchcock film that we used to watch when I was a kid with my dad. He likes Hitchcock. Yeah, it, I mean, it's just like... It, it, if you have an interest in film, you're going to come across North by Northwest <laughs> pretty early on, yes. I think. Um, and I definitely saw this in a couple of film classes, um, both in its entirety and also just the crop duster sequence, which is one of the best filmed and edited action sequences in film history, I think. Um, and so I, I don't really remember when I first saw it, but it is, uh, you know, one of those iconic Hitchcock ones. Do you have a favorite Hitchcock film? Uh, this one's high on the list. I like, um, I really like Rear Window. And I kind of have a love-hate relationship with Vertigo. I really like Vertigo. Um, there have been times in my life when I've watched Vertigo and thought, I don't know why anybody likes this film. And then other times when I watch it and I think, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, so, um, but this has been a steady one that I just always have enjoyed watching. Um, and Rear Window is just, Rear Window is awesome. Uh, Psycho is too scary for me. And the birds is too scary for me. <laughs> I can't do the birds. I like the birds. I like uh, Rope is my favorite Hitchcock. It tends not to be in like people's first references. Mm -hmm. But I think it's like as far as direction goes, I think it's one of his very strongest. Some uh, of his stuff. older stuff is very good. Like the 39 Steps is very good. Um, Notorious. Uh, Notorious is good. There's the one with the... Um, the Merry Wives, the Widow, something, something that's very good. <laughs> uh, the Lady I Vanishes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, he's he had done, a long career. A lot of really good films. Uh, and he, well, I think he also, I think he started in silent cinema and he was mm -hmm. one who made a transition into, into sound. Yeah. So very long career. Well, some trivia now. So uh, there's this famous anecdote that if you do any research into North by Northwest, this seems to be like the lead of many of the articles about it. Hitchcock and writer Ernest Lehman thought of the story when they had been hired to work together to adapt the book, The Wreck of the Merry Deer. But while they were trying to figure out how to adapt it, Layman got writer's block and wanted to drop out. And then Hitchcock just like told him about this idea about a man mistaken for a spy. And they didn't tell the production company what they were doing at first, <laughs> that they were now just scripting and moving forward with this entirely different project that ended up being called North by Northwest. Uh, but when the production company found out, they just said, fine, go do your thing. <laughs> just go do this thing that you obviously want to do. And they hired another writer and director to make The Wreck of the Merry Deer, which came out shortly after North by Northwest and starred Gary Cooper and Charlton Heston. Have you ever seen The Wreck of the Merry Deer? I, have, I had never heard of it until I was looking up this stuff about it. Um, have you? I have not. I saw it also. Um, I watched a short documentary about... The making of North by Northwest and they mentioned, it mentioned this. Yeah. This story was in there. Like I said, yeah. this was in everything I looked up when I was looking up trivia about North by Northwest. I just, I think it's hilarious to think about Hitchcock and Lehman who are both really good at what they did. And, and they were so prolific. You'd think they're just going to be workmen. They're going to be craft. They're like, okay, yeah. you tell me what to do. I'm going to go do it. And then they're here and they're stuck and uh, they're, you know, tossing around ideas. And then 
Layman's like, you know what? I can't do it. I'm just, I'm out. And Even Hitchcock's like, in that case, wait, I've got an idea. <laughs> I mean, and they're adapting a book. Like the story is there in the book. Right. And he's just like, nah, I can't crack it. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Um, Hitchcock made a cameo in almost every film he made. In this case, it is right at the very beginning um, as a bus door slams in his face. Like, uh, the, he's the original Stan Lee. Uh, yeah, just cameos, just often just uh, a profile. Um, he's yeah. a watcher. Maybe. Or a creator <laughs> throws himself in there. Okay, fine. but uh, but a little less obviously than Shyamalan does. Yes, <laughs> Shyamalan has a speaking cameo and everything. Hitchcock tends to just be in the background or something. Um, Grant, Cary Grant, reportedly did not understand the script, and partway through filming, told Hitchcock he was confused, and Hitchcock didn't explain anything to him because Thornhill is supposed to be confused. <laughs> yeah, but it's actually all the the truth is. Yeah. I mean, I think that the truth is that Hitchcock also didn't know what was going to happen. Because he hadn't written the ending yet. They were... Right. It was a they little knew, Casablanca. Yeah, they knew what was going to happen at the beginning, sort of. And they knew that they wanted the big set piece at the end. At the Mount Rushmore. At Mount Rushmore. And they Mount had Rushmore. no idea how he was going to get there. And they were writing it as they were filming it. And there were some moments where they, they, they got kind of stuck again. And kind of had to figure out oh, how is this thing going to happen. But yeah, the reason that Cary Grant was confused is because nobody knew what the heck was going on. So it's understandable. <laughs> yeah. And again, it worked for the performance because he's not supposed to know what's going right. on around him. Uh, Hitchcock could not get permission to film at UN headquarters, but there are shots of UN headquarters in this film because Hitchcock hit a camera in a truck and he had Grant uh, walk up to the UN headquarters and they did it from a few different angles. <laughs> yeah, and there's actually one of the shots is Cary Grant next to a security guard <laughs> from kind of far away. Um, but Hitchcock, uh, he, um, he took a camera with him into i think layman did this also or or maybe one or the other uh they went into the un building and they were like snapping secret pictures so that they could see what the room looked like and then they went back to the studio and they recreated it exactly (laughs) so it looks exactly like what the un building uh would look like but the reason why they wouldn't let them is because something had happened in the un headquarters not long before that and so the security was like really tight much much higher higher security Mm -hmm. um Critics love this film, just worth noting. It has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and it is usually on every list of greatest films ever made. It was number 40 on the American Film Institute's 100 Greatest American Films list and was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry in 1995. And when it was released, it was nominated for Best Editing, Best Art Direction, and Best Original Screenplay, but it lost to Ben-Hur, I think, for the first two, and Best Original Screenplay went to Pillow Talk. Ben Hur won a lot of Academy Awards. It sure did. I think it had, it had the record for the longest time until Titanic. I think, I think it matched or broke eleven Academy Awards or something. Yeah, Pillow Talk's also fun. Uh, Empire Magazine ranked the one thousand one greatest movie moments, which <laughs> that's that's very granular to get down to movie moments. That's amazing, and it named the crop duster chase scene as the number one moment in cinema history. Like just I don't know as about that. a sequence. Just a, it's pretty awesome, Todd. What what do you put above it? Off the top of your head, come on, hit me with something better than the crop duster. Indiana sequence. Jones running chase, getting chased by the rolling ball. See, I th- for Indiana Jones, I think I do what we talked about in last crusade. The horse versus the tank was a better sequence. Okay, <laughs> but, but like iconic moment. It's hard. Like before, I'd seen North by Northwest. I knew the crop duster scene as a kid. I knew that was a thing. I don't know. I I. I, I it's, well, I mean, <laughs> it's it, it's probably not a scientifically uh, based uh, study. 
I, I dare say there's some subjectivity. I mean, the crop duster scene is good, but I, I, when I think of North by Northwest, I have the image of the crop duster scene in my mind, but I'm not like, oh, I just can't wait for the crop duster scene. Oh, I totally am. Really? Like, I am watching this for the crop duster scene. Okay. Like, oh, look at this editing. It starts silent. There's no sound, no music. They don't. Oh, the editing it is. Okay. So okay. All right. All right uh, last bit of trivia. In 2006, and this will be a longer bit of trivia than you expect right now. In 2006, GQ magazine said the gray suit worn by Cary Grant was the best suit in film history and the most influential film clothing on uh, men's fashion in history. And I knew my sister, Kate, former guest star or, or guest on this podcast and co-author of uh, Frasier Cultural History with me had written a paper in her grad school about suits. <laughs> In, in film. And I asked her, is this accurate? And she said, uh, yes, particularly because um, she wrote her paper specifically on James Bond and Bruce Wayne film suits, like uh-huh. the, the, through the history of those characters on film. And her professor was upset that she did not write about the North by Northwest suit <laughs> because it is so iconic and so important. Uh, and uh, I'm just going to quote something. I asked about this and she sent me an email and she said, some quick background while they were popular for businessmen and upper class suits became what everyday wear, uh, men wore to work in the post-war era when returning to real life you, uh, and having been used to wearing a uniform each day, the suit became the new uniform for men to wear. Men's suits are a means of establishing identity, telling the world who you are simply by the color and tailor your suit. And she shared, she shared the entire paper with me, but she, she picked out a couple paragraphs. Um, saying by wearing a suit each character brings upon themselves the culturally established meanings of a suit since the post-war era the suit has become a uniform for men signifying respectability and uniformity by establishing the origin of each individual we know that both heroes talking about uh, james bond and bruce wayne both heroes grew up in an upper class lifestyle and do not need to establish their power with garish or gaudy suits and accessories except their cars we see and accept their power wealth and status with just a simple well-fitted suit and by this they each gain respectability uniformity is found in the ability to blend in with certain environments a skill particularly used by james bond suits can represent also represent a masquerade hiding the true man underneath this representation can see, be seen particularly with bruce wayne as he wears the suit as a means of portraying one of his identities but not his true identity the hiding of his real self by wearing a suit is demonstrated in the loose fit style of his suit with a wider shoulder cut and leg cut wayne's suit is seen as clothing covering his true self whereas in contrast james bond wears not only well-fitted but essentially skin-tight suits for bond the suit is a second skin it is a part of his identity and there's no hiding behind the suit that's cool uh and so this suit is really famous <laughs> i guess it's just what i'd say it's a heck of a suit oh it looks Cary so grant looks great in this suit <laughs> yeah um awesome so before we get to the long synopsis listeners we want to thank each and every one of you for listening and especially thank those of you who support us on patreon if you would also like to support us financially we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least one dollar per month all supporters on patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give monthly updates on our fantasy box office and all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss and now i've got the long synopsis of North by Northwest. So here we go. Uh, the film starts with ho- images of hordes of people in, uh, in New York city. And one of the men in the, in the horde is Cary Grant, who his, his character is named Roger Thornhill. And he's dictating letters to his secretary as they walk. And we can see that he is high energy and he's super uh, hyper efficient. And he's a, he's an, uh, an advertiser. An ad man. So think like a madman. Uh, Thornhill makes his way to a fancy hotel where he meets with some other executives. 
but he's distracted because he had asked his secretary to contact his mother about dinner that evening. But now he realizes that his mother is busy playing bridge and won't get the message. So just as he calls the waiter to help him, so he kind of lifts his hand to call the waiter, uh, the, the waiter calls out for a man named Kaplan. And a couple of thugs mistake Thornhill's call for the waiter as acknowledgement that he is Kaplan. And so they say, that's our man. And they grab him and they force him into a car. And he's really pretty cool about the whole thing. And he's making all these quippy remarks. And uh, they take him to a huge home uh, with the name Townsend on it. And Roger has no idea who Townsend might be. And they lock him in a fancy study. And then a man shows up and it's James Mason. Um, And Roger asks him what's going on. And Townsend thinks he's playing games. And then a guy named Leonard shows up. And when Townsend calls Roger Kaplan... Roger insists that the goons have picked up the wrong guy, which they have. Uh, And Townsend asks Roger how much he knows of Townsend's plans and offers him the opportunity to to survive the night if he plays nicely. And Roger tries to leave, but they won't let him out. And Leonard forces Roger to take a drink. Um, And they make him extremely drunk. (laughs) So drunk. (laughs) And then uh, drunk, uh, they put him in a car and they try to drive him off a cliff into the sea, but he kind of wakes up and he manages to steer the car uh, back onto the road. This is such a great, I like this scene a lot where he's, he's so drunk mm-hmm. and he's trying to stay on the road. And uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's a very well done. Um, so he manages uh, to stay alive until he gets into an accident with a police car. They get, he gets arrested. They take him to the station and he tries to tell them that he was taken to this big house and that they had tried to kill him. The cops don't believe him. He calls his mother with his only call. Um, and Cary Grant, I just have to say, he does a great uh, drunk, acting drunk. <laughs> he really does. It really rivals for me. Um, it reminded me of uh, of Humphrey Bogart in um, The African Queen. He does a great uh, <laughs> drunk. Have we done The African Queen? No. Okay. okay. It's really good. We need to put that on our list. Uh, a doctor examines him and concludes that he is intoxicated. Uh, the next day in court, Roger's lawyer defends him and the judge orders an investigation. So they all drive out to the Townsend mansion uh, and Roger's mother is even there. Uh, and Mr. Townsend is not there, but a maid is. And Roger recognizes her and she leads them into the study, but it's not exactly how he remembers it. The couch has been cleaned of the stains from the bourbon and the liquor cabinet has been filled with books. And Mrs. Townsend comes in and tells him that Roger had been over for a party and had left drunk. When the detectives ask about Mr. Townsend, she tells him that he is addressing the General Assembly of the United Nations this afternoon. They all leave, and the detectives are convinced that Roger has made up the story. So Roger takes his mother back to the hotel where he had been kidnapped, and he calls on the phone to see if there's a George Kaplan staying there. The operator tells him that he hasn't answered the phone in a couple of days. So they get a key to Kaplan's room, and they head up there. One of the maids comes along, and she acts like she knows him, uh, and she's calling him Mr. Kaplan and he's like, have you ever seen Mr. Kaplan? And she, and he realizes that she's never actually seen him. Then the valet shows up and he's never met Kaplan either. So Roger checks out one of Kaplan's suits and realizes that Kaplan must be a much shorter man because I mean, we've already discussed the suit. It's perfectly, <laughs> perfectly tailored suit. And, uh, the one in the closet is certainly not his. So then the phone rings and Roger picks it up and it's one of the goons from the day before uh, and then this confirms to the goons that Roger actually is Kaplan because they've called <laughs> Kaplan's room and he answered the phone. Uh, so Roger and his mother try to get away and Roger grabs a photo from a, a desk that has uh, Townsend in the photo. 
and the goons catch up to them in an elevator and Roger's mother asks him if they're trying to kill her son and they start laughing. And then Roger makes a run for it and he gets a taxi to take him to the United Nations. So he tells the receptionist that he has an appointment with Townsend and that his name is Kaplan. Then Townsend shows up, but it's not the same guy as the day before. And Roger asks him if he lives in that big house. And Townsend said he's been living in his apartment in town for the last month. So the Townsend that was in the house is not the real Townsend. The real Townsend was at the UN and has been living in the city. Uh, and uh, the real Townsend tells him his house was closed up. His wife is dead. And then Roger pulls the photo out of his pocket and asks Townsend if he's seen this guy. And then just then a knife appears in the real Townsend's back thrown by one of the goons. And when he falls into Roger's arms, uh, Roger unfortunately pulls the knife out, thus making it look like he has just stabbed Townsend in the back. So he runs again. (laughs) Gotta say, I love Hitchcock and I'm going to, we're going to dwell on some of the great, editing and moments yes. that he stages this is not one of them <laughs> why not when he grabs the knife out and then like pauses as f- photographs are, are being shot of him like he <laughs> so freezes good. completely looking like he's in the motion of stabbing with a guilty look on his face as multiple photographers shoot shots and then he drops everything and runs <laughs> okay fine uh then we get to some people sitting around a table and they're all wondering how roger thornhill has been pegged as george kaplan when they know that Kaplan doesn't really even exist. Uh, And they seem to understand everything what's going on and they're talking, but we still don't really get it. Uh, One of them asks what they're going to do with Roger and their boss, who is called the professor. He tells them that they're going to do nothing. They had created Kaplan as a decoy and now he's even better as a live decoy. Uh, These people who work for the U S government, they can't let Van Damme, who is the real Townsend. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The fake Townsend. The bad guy, the James Mason guy, he is called Van Damme. Uh, And they can't let him know that Roger isn't Kaplan because then he might suspect their actual agent who is embedded very deep inside of Van Damme's team. So they're just going to let Thornhill run until he gets caught and killed. This is uh, is the government plan. (laughs) So Kaplan calls his mother and tells her uh, that he's taking a train to Chicago to try to catch the real Kaplan. Uh, life is more difficult for him now since his photo is all over the front page. So he wears uh, sunglasses so that nobody will recognize that it's Cary Grant working around, walking around in perfect suit. The same suit he was wearing when he posed for the photograph stabbing yeah, someone. Yeah, but it has no blood on it. <laughs> and, um, and I mean, it's Cary Grant. It's sort of, <laughs> it's sort of like a, in um, While You Were Sleeping when Sandra Bullock's like, oh, I'm just frumpy Sandra Bullock. And you're like, okay. You can put a big coat on, but you're still Sandra Bullock. You know, like, we all know you're not frumpy. Well, a couple weeks, um, Joseph, you you texted this, I think, um, and it was, you know, that Clark Kent and Superman thing is really dumb. But then you see a picture of Zoe Deschanel without bangs and glasses, and it, it, it's actually, you know, changing <laughs> the hair and wearing glasses really makes a difference. We'll, we'll put a. We'll try and get that meme in the in the show notes. It was a meme I saw going around. Like it, there's like a red carpet picture of Zoe Deschanel. I'm like that, that doesn't look like a famous person I know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> see. Yeah, I, I think see that. the Clark Kent Superman thing could work. <laughs> Glasses and uh, and bangs. <laughs> sure. Okay. All right. I feel like Clark Kent has a little bit less. Um, hair to work with. Yes, that, that's true. The, the only actor who's really done it, I think, is Christopher Reeve. Like, the way he hunches down when he's Clark Kent and the way he swells uh-huh. up when he's Superman okay. d- does a lot for it. Yeah. 
So at the train station, the ticket guy recognizes him and calls the authorities, but Roger sneaks onto one of the trains where he literally bumps into a beautiful blonde woman played by Eva Marie Saint, who covers for him without asking any questions. He tells her the police are looking for him because of parking tickets. <laughs> Later, he sits down for a meal with her and they do some very, very open flirting. And she <laughs> lets him know that she would love to, <clears throat> you know, and he seems great with that idea. Uh, so she tells him that she knows who he is and she doesn't care because he has a nice face and it's going to be a long night. And she doesn't like the book that she started. So was, I was like, what? This is very, um, the Hays Code is still in place and they are just kicking it every border really... of the Hays Code imaginable. Yes. <laughs> so then the police get onto the train and Eve, this is the woman's name. She takes Roger back to hide him in her private car. Their relationship progresses. <clears throat> um, rather quickly. <laughs> and then we see that she sent a secret message to Leonard and Van Damme, who are in another car, asking what she should do with Roger in the morning. The next day, Eve helps Roger get off the train. She tells him that she's called Kaplan and arranged an appointment. She gives him the details. He tries to thank her, but she seems a bit nervous. Could she be developing feelings for him? Possibly. So Roger follows Eve's instructions, and he ends up in the middle of nowhere, in like Really the middle of nowhere. Uh, and a bus drops him off at the side of this road and he waits and all is quiet. He's waiting for Kaplan to show up. A few cars drive by, but nobody stops. And a little car comes up and drops off some random guy. And Roger tries to talk to him, but he says he's just waiting for the next bus. He does point out that there's a crop duster plan, uh, a crop duster uh, out on the horizon. And then um, the bus picks up the man and the plane flies over and it tries to kill Roger. And it's uh, it's a crop duster with a machine gun. And Roger tries to flag down a passing car, but to no avail. And then he runs and he hides in a cornfield. So the, the plane drops chemicals on him. And then he runs and he tries to, uh, he stops a gas tanker truck. And the plane flies itself into the side of the truck and it blows up. Greatest moment in cinema history. Like, is, if I'm going through the channels and I see North by Northwest, I'd probably wait for this sequence. <laughs> um, here's looking at you, kid. This is going to be the beginning of a beautiful relationship. <laughs> you, you. <laughs> I mean, Casablanca has great moments. I'm sure some of them are on that list of 1,001 greatest moments in film history, which is, again, just such a granular list. And this was number one in their list. Okay. All right. Okay. I have to look it up. <laughs> uh, so the truck blows up. Roger's fine. Um, he steals a car and he heads back into Chicago to look for Kaplan at his hotel. But Kaplan has checked out and headed to South Dakota. Uh, but then, um, Roger sees Eve and he realizes that she set him up. So he goes to her room and he's angry, but she hugs him and he's not convinced of her goodwill. And he tells her that he's going to stay close to her, but she tells him, uh, that she needs to leave. No questions asked. And he refuses. And then they start flirting again. And then he takes off his dirty suit to get it cleaned. And he jumps in the shower, but he's not really in the shower. He's waiting for her to leave so that he can make a rubbing of an address that she's written down earlier on the hotel notepad. So then he follows her to that address and it's a fancy auction. And when he gets there, he finds Eve with Van Damme and Leonard and he confronts Van Damme just right in the middle of the auction, uh, insinuating that Eve has fallen in love with him. Uh, Van Damme looks hurt and Roger threatens to go to the police and Eve looks really hurt. Um, but Leonard and another of Van Damme's goons won't let Roger get out of this place. So Roger starts to make a scene um, he starts bidding up on everything and he's just, he's just making this uh, scandalous scene uh, at the auction. And then the police show up and arrest him. The FBI guy is there and he places a call 
And Roger tells the police that he's the United Nations killer. And the cop calls it, the cop calls it in and he's ordered to take Roger to the airport. And he wants to go to police headquarters, but they insist on going to the airport. And then the professor, the FBI guy, shows up to talk with Roger. So the police have taken him, they've taken him away. And now the FBI guy shows up, the one that was willing to let Roger get killed. Uh, and now he's talking to him. Do you have something to say here? No, I'm just trying to find that list. Okay. I haven't been able to find it. Because it doesn't exist. The 1001 Greatest Moments. Because I think you made up that piece of trivia just so that you can say <laughs> this was the greatest one. The professor tells Roger that they are going to Rapid City, South Dakota. Um, he knows that Roger is innocent. Van Damme trades in government secrets, but they can't grab him because they don't have enough information about his organization. So the professor tells Roger that there is no George Kaplan, but that they, they created Kaplan as a decoy. And now he's kind of fallen into this, but now Roger has to continue pretending to be Kaplan uh, for the next 24 hours. And Roger tells him, now you listen to me. I'm an advertising man, not a red herring. I've got a job, a secretary, a mother, two ex-wives and several bartenders depending on me. And I don't intend to disappoint them by all by, uh, I'm sorry. And I don't intend to disappoint them all by getting myself slightly killed. But then the professor tells him that Eve is actually one of their agents and that she did what she did. So she wouldn't, so that she wouldn't be killed. So now she's in danger because Van Damme can't tell Eve uh, his feelings for Thornhill. So they go to Mount Rushmore where Roger meets Van Damme. Roger tells Van Damme that he knows the exact time and place of Van Damme's rendezvous that evening when Van Damme is supposed to leave the country. And he wants Van Damme to give up Eve in exchange for Roger tr not trying to stop him. He says he wants this so that he can pin a bunch of stuff on Eve as revenge for using him. And as Van Damme tries to get away, Roger grabs Eve and she shoots him right in the middle of the, of the cafe at the visitor center. Um, and the professor there is there and he's uh, pretending to be a doctor and they haul off Roger's dead body and Eve makes her escape in a car and Van Damme and Leonard let her go because they don't want to get involved. So she drives away in one car. Roger drives away in the ambulance. Uh, and then the professor takes Roger into the woods where he's not really dead because it was a pretend gun and, uh, or was firing blanks. And he meets up with Eve and they apologize to each other. And she tells him that she'd fallen in love with Van Damme at a party. And the government had later approached her with sordid details about Van Damme and she had signed on to help. It was the first time anyone had asked her to do something good. She tells Roger that her problem is men like him who don't believe in marriage. He tells her that he's been married twice. <laughs> he says, of course I believe in marriage. I've been married twice. Uh, they hug and they kiss, but it's time for her to go back to Van Damme. So Roger tells her that they're going to get together tonight, but she and the professor tell him that she's leaving with Van Damme. She tries to get away. Roger tries to stop her and he gets knocked out. Later, the professor brings Roger some new clothes and Roger tells him that he's totally willing to cooperate and that he's forgotten Eve, but it looks like he may have other plans. So he escapes from his room and he gets a cab ride up to Van Damme's house in the woods and he sneaks close to the house and hears Leonard talking, uh, telling Van Damme not to trust Eve, then later shoots Van Damme with Eve's gun, which is full of blanks. So Leonard says, I'm going to prove to you that, uh, that she's not, um, that she's not really on our side and he shoots her, uh, he shoots Van Damme with the gun, but it's, it's fake. So now Van Damme knows that she's not on his side and he tells Leonard that they will throw her out of the plane when they get over water. Roger makes his way into the house and he writes a note to Eve on a book of matches, which he throws in her direction and uh, she finds it. And, um, and then he gets a moment to talk to her and he tells her, don't get on the plane. And then Van, but then she has to leave. And so Van Damme, Leonard and Eve, uh, they leave the house and Thornhill is caught sneaking around the house by the maid. And uh, Van Damme is just about to escort Eve onto the plane when they hear shots from the house. 
and Roger comes running out of the house and jumps in a car and he picks up Eve and they try to make their getaway, but they don't get very far before their way is blocked. So they jump out of the car and they want, run through the forest and Van Damme's goons are right behind them. And they make their way to the top of Mount Rushmore, and then they start to climb down the front of it. See, I think this is a more iconic scene than the than the crop oh, duster scene. No way! Climbing it's down the front of the Mount crop, Rushmore. The crop duster scene is way more iconic. <laughs> uh, while hanging on the front of one of the faces, Roger tells Eve that they should take the train back to New York. She asks if that's a proposition, and he tells her it's a proposal. And she asks about his previous two wives, and he tells her they divorced him because he led too dull a life. So then they, they keep coming down. She falls partway down the down the Mount Rushmore, and she hurts her elbow. They keep climbing, and then one of the goons catches up to Roger, and he jumps on top of him, but Roger throws him off the cliff. And then Leonard tries to throw Eve off the cliff, but she manages to hold on for a minute. Roger grabs her hand and asks Leonard for help, uh, but Leonard steps on his hand. So Roger's like holding on to the ledge and he's holding on to her hand and then uh, Leonard is stepping on his hand um, and nobody can hold on much longer. Uh, the FBI shows up and shoots Leonard. He falls to his death. Um, but Roger is still trying to pull Eve up from the cliff. She can't hold him on much longer. And then he calls out to her, come on, Mrs. Thornhill. And then we cut to them in a train car, snuggling up in their little fold-out bed. And she tells him, this is silly. And he tells her that he is sentimental. And then the final image is the train going into the tunnel, um, which may or may not be, you know, a what, metaphor for something. It, it's what they could get away with, the, the haze code. Yes. Uh, the end. That's it. <laughs> Good summary, Todd. So I have a question. Go ahead. Uh, often when people talk about Hitchcock films, um, they'll say... Uh, the great thing about the Hitchcock film is that it takes like a regular guy, you know, an everyday man, an every man, and puts him in an extraordinary situation. And then we see how he how he handles it. So my question is, is Roger Thornhill really an every man? Yeah, if you're casting Cary Grant, you are not casting an every man. <laughs> Let's just start with that premise <laughs> as we address this. Uh, so, like, and I mean that both as, like, he's, like, an iconically attractive Hollywood leading man. Yes. But also, like, he's one of those actors who you carried in all his previous roles when you watch North by Northwest. So I think for an audience of the time and even for audiences now, it's like, oh, it's Cary Grant. Like, that's not an every man. <laughs> So, so I, I think you lose some of like the uh, the everydayness that you'd mm-hmm. want every man and every man to have that uh, when you have Cary Grant as the cast. But then also we see him uh, like the, the choices he makes throughout this film. I'm not sure they're every man choices. <laughs> yeah. I I agree with you. I feel like I agree with you to a point on like if you're casting Cary Grant, you're not going to cast an every man. Um, I feel like in, uh, is it in bringing a baby where mm-hmm. he's the, the dinosaur bone guy? Yes. Yeah. Like my, my wife and I just watched bringing up baby and it's like, okay, Cary Grant. I mean, he, he is a great actor and everything doesn't entirely sell dinosaur bone scientists. <laughs> But he at least tries to sell. Oh yeah, and, right. And like and nerdy, like nerdy that, guy that doesn't know how to talk like, to women. Yeah, really nerdy, and everything's like, yeah. But you're like, you're like six foot four, <laughs> right? Like you're 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 big chiseled jaw kind of guy. Like you could have played Superman if they were making yeah, Superman films. Absolutely. Oh yeah. But and and I I don't ever think of Cary Grant as like action movie star, although I, he does a great job in this film. Um, but it's just like. When he gets hauled off and they throw him in the cab. And, and he's, he's just so, like, 
so cool yeah, and nonchalant exactly awesome. about it. And he's so quippy. And then he goes, it's like everything that comes out of his mouth is funny. And he's just not like, it doesn't seem to me that he acts in any way like a normal human being or, would act in that situation. Or even when, uh, like, I understand you, you have this crazy thing happen and you, you, you escape, right? You escape with your life sure. like, in, in the opening thing and you take the police and everything's a mystery. And I think some, some percentage of the population would say, I'm just gonna let this go <laughs> at that point <laughs> when the police have investigated and said, sure. there's nothing here. Uh, but he won't let it go. Like he, he's driven in a way that I think goes also like besides his suaveness in the face of mortal danger, uh-huh. he's also like driven to like keep figuring everything out. I mean, he's more James Bond than he is every man. I agree with that. In this. Mm-hmm. And James Bond is not an every man. He's James Bond, right? <laughs> like, he has a name. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, the fact that you would just bump into a woman as you're, as you're being, like, hounded by the police. And, and you have to wear big sunglasses. And you have the most extremely flirt- attractive sunglasses. Most flirtatious conversation of your life. So flirtatious, <laughs> they actually had her dub over some of her lines. Like, there are moments where her uh, dialogue doesn't match her lip movements because the, the Hays Code said, too far. You've gone too far. <laughs> And what you're saying in this dining car scene. <laughs> but to be like, t- to have that kind of attitude when the police are chasing you and you're running for your life. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, but I've got time to, you know, snuggle up with this lady that I don't even know. <laughs> and, like, and, yeah. Make quips with the very gangsters who are pointing guns at you. Yes. Yeah. All I mean, of that. Just, I am sure I would make quips to gangsters pointing guns at me. Well, but would the everyman. Right. That is the question. I mean, <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, that was, it's, it's, I mean, it's, the film is delightful and he is, and it's just, it's like a tour de force. Like his acting is amazing and he looks great in the suit and the dialogue is super funny and there's so much about this film that works. Uh, but I don't buy for a single second (laughs) that this is an everyman or that this is how any normal rational human being would act in almost any scene of this film. Uh, he, he is extraordinary in so many different ways. Um, and I'm fine with that. Like, yeah. I'm fine with this film as it is. But I don't think it should be sold as an everyday man. This is what gets happens with an everyday guy. Yeah. yeah. And we see it from the very beginning when he's, when he's with his secretary and the dictaphone and he's just, he's like so high energy and so oh, hyper efficient that he's extraordinary. He is elite, right? Like mm-hmm. he's not an elite uh, FBI agent, but he's an elite man. Though he right? sure could be an elite FBI agent. Right. <laughs> From- and, and so it's, it's not, um, I was listening to something today and somebody was talking about the difference between elitism and being elite. Um, because everybody's down on like, Oh, the elites are, they're so terrible. And this person was saying like, I don't want anybody but elite people playing NBA basketball. Right. Like LeBron James is elite and Steph Curry is elite. And that's why we, we enjoy watching them play basketball. And somebody that's, um, you know, like uh, uh, working on my brain, I want to be an elite neurosurgeon. I don't want uh, uh, somebody who's, you know, like, oh, I'm, you know, you want somebody that's going to be a, the, the very best at what they do. Um, and I, I, I get the feeling that the setup from the very beginning of him walking around with his secretary is to show us this guy is elite. He looks elite. He talks elite and he, he gets stuff done. Um, and so we're not seeing what happens to an, an yeah. everyday man. We're seeing what happens to a super elite, super intelligent, high powered executive guy when he gets 
uh, taken away. I do want to say, you said you don't want to see anyone but the elite playing in the NBA Finals. There's a comedian named Ryan Hamilton who has a hilarious Netflix special called Happy Face. But in there, one of his bits is, I, I well, he starts by saying, I think I have a place in the Olympics. Uh, and <laughs> that sounds like a bold thing, but I just think the Olympics, you're seeing the top level athletes and we don't appreciate how good they are. So we just need an average guy running <laughs> on the outside lane. So we can say, holy cow, even the eighth place guy is so amazing. Yeah, it's true. So um, anyway, that's, uh, I think he's amazing. Um, but I don't think that he's an everyman, not for, yeah. not for a second. No, I agree with that. Um, you were saying like, th- there's so much about this film that is clicking on like every cylinder. Yes. And I think the opening credits is uh-huh. like just a tour de force of how to evoke things in your audience. And mm-hmm. like, you don't even know why you're feeling it, but there's more tension in those opening credits than some films manage to create when they're trying to create tension in a fully <laughs> like scene with, with dialogue and music and yeah. everything. And it's all done with the, uh, the the score by Bernard Herrmann, underrated score, yep. you know, person in Hollywood history, I think. Um, and in the credits by Saul Bass. Saul Bass, mm-hmm. like he defined the, the way movie credits are done mm-hmm. for a generation. People still like if you study film, you're going to hear people talk about Saul Bass credits. And mm-hmm. you should just go watch the opening credits of North by Northwest. It is just amazing, and it's just shots of a city and mm-hmm. of people on a street. But the way the letters are formed and come in and the music that's playing, like you're like, oh, what's, what's, what's coming? There's, yeah. there's something imminent here. Um, and that level of craftsmanship gets carried through the entire film, as mm-hmm. far as concerned, minus that one laughable scene to me of him holding the knife after it, at, in the UN lobby. That scene doesn't bother me at all. Oh, really? No. Like, I still remember watching that in a film class. And when it happened, like, just this... <laughs> Like, like, <laughs> mm, yeah. scene's not playing quite as well as it could have. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, it's it's just it's terrible timing. Well, yeah, and, and well, I mean, everything about this whole film is about like these circumstances that are so implausible, and right. like you said, the terrible timing and like the the worst luck imaginable, mm-hmm. and that seems just for me just like a little too over the top in how bad okay. his luck is. Uh, but the the uh the crop duster scene the scene on uh mount rushmore the 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 driving drunk scene the driving drunk scene like there's so much being drunk scene yeah there's so much (laughs) of this that is just the the acting the writing the editing the directing the camera work are all coming together to make us feel exactly what we're supposed to feel Mm -hmm. even if the plot is sometimes a bit nonsensical (laughs) like in some ways it to me it's a little bit like the big sleep this makes more sense than the big sleep like we spend a lot of time when we talk about the big sleep saying None of this actually makes any sense, but I feel what I'm supposed to feel while I'm watching it. Yes. And I think Hitchcock is a master at making us feel exactly what he wants us to be feeling. He's manipulating us just masterfully. Yeah. I think that this, um, I, I think that the, the parallel with the big sleep is apt. Um, I, I think the difference is the big sleep. It just doesn't make sense. If you try to connect the dots, nothing it's makes completely sense. nonsensical. In this one, I think you can connect the dots. And, and, say, and hearing your summary where you're like really breaking it down, that made more sense than watching the film. Yeah. and But there's a whole thing. I mean, I didn't even mention like the whole, the, there's at, at the, towards the end of the film, like in the, in the final act, uh, you see there's a little statue and it's got some microfilm in it. And that's the thing that Van Damme is trying to get out of the country. And it's supposedly has some government secrets on it or something. None of that matters yeah. at, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in the end, somehow Roger has it in his hand. And that's part of the tension when they're climbing down the rocks, uh, yeah. uh, down Mount Rushmore is that he's got this thing in his hand and then he drops it and it breaks open. 
none of that matters at all. So it's not that it's, it's not that it's so confusing and that you don't understand anything that's going on. You can explain the plot of this story in a way that you cannot explain the plot of the big sleep. Um, it's just that none of it matters. It just Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. The MacGuffin is, it's just, well, that's the Hitchcock term for the thing is the MacGuffin, right? right? Where when he was breaking down story plots, he's like, well, there's the MacGuffin. And that was his filler word for the diamonds, the secret plans, mm-hmm. the, the Maltese Falcon. Yeah. Wh- whatever it is that people are seeking, that doesn't actually matter to Hitchcock. It yeah. is about like, who are our characters and what are they feeling? And what do I want the audience to feel yes. in this? And this is, um, and this is an interesting case where the MacGuffin doesn't actually get introduced till the end yeah. right? or, or, or near, you know, mm-hmm. well into the film where it's like, Oh, this is what they're going for. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about like hero's journey. Normally in hero's journey, you get, the MacGuffin interested introduced early because that is the thing that that sends the hero on the adventure. He doesn't know why he's on an adventure for a very long time in this film, and in the end, it gets it gets revealed that that thing is that the MacGuffin is the is the thing. Mm-hmm. It, it, and normally, in, in like classic hero's journey uh, stories, the MacGuffin is the thing that's tied to the call to adventure. But not always. I want to break this up because this is an interesting thing. When we're talking about Roger Thornhill and like, is he an old guy? And I'm bringing this idea of the hero's journey. Like so often there's like the the choice or the longing to like leave their known world. And that's what drives Mm -hmm. our our heroes. Like Luke staring up at the devil's sons. Kicking rocks on Tadwing. Yeah. uh, In A New Hope. And he just gets pulled into this other world, mm-hmm. but then he, he doesn't let it go, <laughs> right? Yeah. He, 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 he probably has a few exit ramps he could take where he's like, I'm just going to go back to my life because I got pulled into something that was way deeper than I wanted to be in. And it's bad news and I'm going to die. Uh, but he, he just keeps pulling at the threads, of, you know? Uh-huh. Um, but, but as far as the hero's journey goes, like, what, what is he, like, what, what is his quest for? <laughs> like, what, what is the quest that he's on? <laughs> Um, that's a really good question. So what's his call to adventure? His call to adventure is just, he gets sucked into this thing. Yeah. The mobsters pick him up and say, I'm pointing a gun at you. Get in the car. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, like, what's he striving for? I don't even know. It's not to stay alive after a certain point. Cause he keeps putting himself in situations that are gonna be more dangerous than is it, is it just knowledge? He feel, feels the need for well, knowledge? Well, in the end, he wants to be with Eve. Right. That happens eventually, but that's not why he goes to the hotel room, right? And He's just trying to figure it out. I mean, I think... It's it's knowledge, right? Yeah, it's, it's Clarity. Mm-hmm. He wants to know what's going on. I mean, the, I guess there's the, the understanding that if he doesn't figure it out, then Van Damme's going to come after him. Man, I don't... Kind of? After yeah. they've killed him? I mean, after they tried to kill him with the with the things... And he, he went, I think he knows that he knows too much and that he needs, he has to figure, he has to, he has to finish this path. Um, there is a thing in the hero's journey, in the, in the hero with a thousand faces, he talks about um, that uh, sometimes the hero just wants to stay in the underworld forever. <laughs> and that, that, that there's a strong temptation for that. The refusal to the return. Refusal, the refusal to return. And that um, then there has to be, be, you know, some compelling reason to get pulled back, uh, pulled back up into the, into the light. Um, so, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. It's interesting when a hero gets just sucked into, um, into the adventure, uh, the hero's journey becomes, um, I think sometimes more complicated. Uh, it's harder to kind of tease out the different mm-hmm. steps because in, in normally in like classic hero's journey, uh, that call to adventure is so closely tied to that, 
yearning the thing that yeah. you need to get well and also the hero's yearning for something more right yeah um and i mean we think about roger like does roger change how does how does roger change oh, that was gonna be my film? next question for you so like our only real hint of change is like we know he struggled with marriage mm-hmm. and he seems to be read, ready to give it a go again but he yeah. already gave it a go twice so is that really a change <laughs> like is this one gonna stick is the question yeah um and i don't know I mean, I, I don't, I don't see a huge indication that there's been a a, a great change in his character. I, I don't know. Is there anything in the in the text itself, like in the in the story itself, that tells us this is a changed man? He's he's been through this thing, and he was a very different person at the beginning than he is at the end. Yeah, well, no, no, because from the very beginning, like he is not put off by having a gun pointed at him and being kidnapped nope. from the bar. Like he's just kind of like nonchalant what's going on guys yeah. <laughs> like if he had gone from panicked uncertain i don't know what's going on yes. and, and that that puts that throws me off my game mm-hmm. uh to a guy who can run up and down rushmore's face with spies shooting at him mm-hmm. and and you know he's he feels in control of that situation that would be one thing i, I mean i guess i'll tell you what the thing I, that that may be and we may be just reading into this. I don't know that the, I don't know if the text itself bears this up, um, but it seems that there's something special about her. And what that could be, we have no idea because they don't even know each other, except that they were on a train for a while and they did some wild flirting, and then they had some uh, some crazy time in the in the train car. Um, so it's not like there's a ton of substance to this relationship, but it seems like he's drawn to her maybe in a way that he hasn't been to his previous wives. I mean, he's willing to do a lot I and mean, to risk a lot for her when he's given so many opportunities to leave. Um, and he continues to say, no, I'm going back and back, um, back for her. Uh, and I'm going to try to save her. And I want, I want to be married to her. And so it would be interesting if we had any more information about his previous wives and what his relationship with them had been like. Um, but we get the sense that he's, committed to her in a way that maybe he wasn't committed to the previous women in his life and that maybe there's something yeah. about it but but as but, i said like it doesn't seem like the text really bears that reading I mean, the only thing but i think that's what hitchcock wants us to think i mean we're told the flaw is that he wasn't adventurous enough and he's really quite clearly willing to be adventurous for her <laughs> right but that yeah, what does he say i was um i was too too, too dull too dull I yeah. lived too dull a life or something, but that's not what we, the sense that we get from him in the beginning is so high energy and, and he's in complete control of everything. It doesn't seem like he's dull. If he wants to go skiing, he's going to go skiing. If he wants to go skydiving, he's going to go skydiving. He's not and some, he, yeah, like but, a but nervous guess, guy. But I guess what, what we could say is, is like, there's what is different about this woman. Well, he's willing to go do those crazy things that apparently he wouldn't do with his earlier wives. Right. Cause he was being dull. We let him go. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like maybe the thing that comes out of this is he realizes his calling that he really should be an FBI agent or something, you know, <laughs> like North by Northwest. The text returns. does not tell, the, tell us that. Right. Yeah. It seems like part two of this is, um, you know, they come back to him and say, we need you to do something mm-hmm. else. And he's like, let's do it. And he takes his new wife and they go do this crazy adventure. I can totally see that happening. Um, and then the change would be, well, you know, he used to be an ad guy and now he's a, he's an agent. He basically turns himself into an agent, mm-hmm. but, but as, as you pointed out, it doesn't seem like this great transformation inside of him. He yeah. just is, was kind of always that. And, and people love that. I mean, yeah. Cary Grant is 
talk about the greatest actors of all time. <laughs> he's very high on the list. Yeah. Uh, because there's something about him that's just attractive. Like in the, in the sense that you're drawn to him, there's he, when he's on screen, you want to watch him and, um, and he just owns it. <laughs> he just, he yeah. owns this film from yeah. start to finish. Well, I think what you're saying, like that, that kind of uh, mystique around Cary Grant, I think there's that same mystique around North by Northwest. Mm -hmm. Like what about each one of these things is what makes it so great? I don't know. <laughs> like the character we've kind of said doesn't have the transformation we usually seek out. Mm -hmm. The plot that sometimes is a bit nonsensical and the MacGuffin is kind of a throwaway thing, but something alchemical <laughs> in this combination of the script and mm -hmm. Alfred Hitchcock's directing and Cary Grant's performance makes this a film that's just really enjoyable to watch. Yeah. And I, I think, again, it's it's not so much um, what is each part, but as a whole, what does it make you feel? It, it, it comes together masterfully. Yeah, and sometimes we want to watch something because we want to identify with the characters and we, we just, I don't know what order these things are going to go in, but we were just talking about Antigone and, and, and as, as an audience member, really trying to connect with, with characters and identify with strengths, weaknesses. And themes, like, is there a theme, theme in this? Not really a great theme that can immediately. And sometimes you just want to go see Cary Grant, be Cary Grant because it's awesome. And there's a crop duster with machine guns. Why does it have machine guns? <laughs> I don't know, but that scene of him running at the camera with the crop duster coming down behind him. Yeah, it's good. Okay, I'll admit it's good. I'm not, I, I don't know if I'll go as far as to say it's the greatest moment in all of film history, but it's pretty good. Moses parting the Red Sea in the Ten Commandments, the chariot race in Ben-Hur. There are, there are other iconic moments, though. They listed a thousand and one. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure those are in there. I, I, might, put, I might put the chariot race in Ben-Hur at the top of that list. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty iconic. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's what this is, is you have one of the greatest directors of all time, one of the greatest actors of all time um, with this a great score, right? The Layman script with an amazing score. It's beautifully edited. Uh, there are these great action sequences and climbing down the front of Mount Rushmore. And, um, and there's this like uh, borderline, uh, racy, racy relationship, relationship, but, then, like, but it's not really like it's uh, it's safe. Right, enough. but if it ended like that, then I, I mean, I think I'm sure as a kid, my parents would not have let me watch this movie. Except that in the end, they're like married, and yeah. and and so it's great. And so uh, there's just there's a ton going for this film that, that it doesn't surprise me at all that I mean, you know, I practically have to not have a pulse to not watch this film and think, okay, this is a pretty great film. <laughs> yeah. um, is it the greatest film of all time? I don't think I would, I, I don't, I don't think I can say this is the greatest film of all time. Is it one of the funnest films of all time? Maybe. <laughs> like for me, even though it doesn't get grouped into this because it predates this era, it's a summer blockbuster film. Yes. Right. Like mm -hmm. the, the thing we associate with the summer block, like, and, and we do these generic, uh, like it's a bond film. Well, but, but I'm saying like as audiences, like we, we, have been trained to like do our generic classifications. This is an award season film. Like this is right. the, the Academy award film. This is the summer blockbuster film. Mm -hmm. This is the indie drama. And this predates like a summer blockbusters, mm -hmm. but it is a summer blockbuster spy thriller. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what it goes. Like uh, usually jaws is like our dividing line of pre summer blockbuster <laughs> as a thing. And like okay. with, with jaws happening, it's like, Oh, this is now a, a certain kind of film that's always going to be made. Uh, but, 
it it checks all those generic conventions where it's going to be like a little escapist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, beautiful to watch. Uh, you expect great action scenes. You're mm-hmm. going to have a romantic relationship somewhere in there. Like it checks all those boxes for summer blockbuster. Mm-hmm. It just happened to come out before we really had that as a genre that we identified. Yeah, and um, I mean, so so one of the things that we've discussed fairly often as we've done this now, like almost 200 times is uh, there's kind of two ways to be great. Uh, one is you can just deviate from the formula and do something totally new and wild, or you can just do the thing that you do or the thing that is done and do it just better than anybody else. <laughs> and I think that this, and there's a, I mean, there's a million movies about, you know, spy stuff or people getting swept up all in the whole film noir. This is kind of neo-noir in the mm-hmm. sense that it's a guy who gets kind of swept up into a thing that, um, I mean, shares a lot with noir. I, I don't, I, I don't know that I would classify it as like classic noir film, uh, but it shares a lot with, with that. And it's a, f- a formula that's been done over and over again. But when you put Lehman and, uh, and Hitchcock and Cary Grant and, and you even James open it with, Mason, with, with Saul Bass credits, <laughs> like yeah, it just elevate, everything is, like, is elevated. Everything is just done so well. Uh, that it just it just makes it rise up to the top of all of these films. It's a genre of film that's very appealing to us for a lot of different reasons. And so when you get all of those things happening, like clicking on that level and it pushes up, I think um, uh, Eva Marie Saint is good in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's not given a ton to do, um, but she but she does great. She has great chemistry with Cary Grant, and um, and it's just it's like it's not her movie. Yeah. Uh, it's his, uh-huh. um, but she does a good job. And, and there's no, at, at no point in this film does everything kind of fall apart. Um, it's, it's well paced. Uh, it's amazing to think that they were just sort of making it up as they went. And that this was like <laughs> a couple of guys who c- couldn't really make the film that they wanted. And so they just made the film that they, or did they couldn't make the film that they had to make. And so they made the, ended up making a film that they wanted to, and they ended up, it's all improvised and, but it, it seems like sometimes that's a formula for success. Sometimes it's a formula for disaster. This and Casablanca. We, we point to those yes. as like, hey, look at how this thing works out. Let's go try that a lot. No, no, no we probably should not. <laughs> it really should be nobody's plan. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to go make the next North by Northwest. We'll just throw it together. And Well, um, even, I guess you saying that, like, even amongst, like, the things that are just about, like, the feel this film evokes, like, the title North by Northwest explain what that means in this film. It's like, it's kind of moving. Like some people like say, well, they're going to South Dakota from New York. That's kind of, well, and that's what it was. <laughs> yeah. Was it, at some point, um, that was their plan was to sort of, they knew they wanted to start the film in New York and they wanted it to end in South, South Dakota. Dakota. So they called it North by Northwest. Even though I think if you look at a map, <laughs> I don't know. That's that more west. Really than... gone north at all? I think they've mostly just gone west. And north by northwest is not even really a thing. It's not a. It's not a direction. You like you. Not... you what, what, where are we going? North by northwest. Please. Yeah, it, just, it doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> but it, but it's evocative of yes, this yeah. kind of spy mystique feel that mm-hmm. the whole film is drenched in. Yeah, it's a fun film. It's not the most important film that was ever made. Uh, I don't think it has like the most important message of any film that was ever made. (laughs) Uh, But just to, it's just fun sometimes to watch Cary Grant be Cary Grant and to be directed by Hitchcock and all of these other great people around them that, that just put this thing together and you go, okay, that's that's awesome. That's a good film. Really fun. (laughs) Great character. Great story. Checks those boxes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I will say, I think, 
if you're going to look at this film and like want to study something, I'd study the editing, the, like the, the pace yeah. of shots, how shots are done. And that's way you. more your, uh, your field than mine. Um, I've taken, you know, some film classes and I have had some training in that, but nowhere near the extent that you have. And so, uh, I am willing to just sort of defer to you <laughs> when you say this is it's like such a great, uh, edited film. Um, I mean, it is, <laughs> but, uh, but I think you appreciate the nuances of editing more than I do just because of who we are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but just the, it, I think this is, has multiple scenes that will be taught in college, like oh, yeah. in film, in film classes forever. <laughs> and it's not because like we said, like, Oh, this is the thematic depth of, you know, the greatest Shakespearean tragedy. No, it no. doesn't. Uh, but there's craft at work here. Yeah. Uh, and that's why it's enjoyable. Um, it, and you, like you said, just sit back, turn it on and, and relax and watch people who are at the top of their game, do their thing. And it makes a package that's worth watching. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Anything else? No, I, I mean, that kind of covered my notes uh, for this. Okay. Uh, well, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows. Go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out. And um, it actually really does help us out. So we love your reviews. And we'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty for composing our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episode number 138, The Big Sleep, or 117, About the Fugitive. Um, I hadn't even thought of The Fugitive doing this, but uh, again, a, a film made by people at the top of their game doing great stuff. Uh, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at this Minute, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have great conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back again next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. For the audience, this can come immediately. Hold on. <laughs> I'm going to respond as though I had this in my head. I have only one, one X. Uh, uh, I can pass you by. I've only got two bars here. So cast. You are underground. Yeah.